Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, and we come to one of the most extraordinary events in all of biblical history, and that is with Abraham and the sacrifice of his son. The book of Hebrews itself begins with the declaration of the nature and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, in rather exalted terms. And then it goes on, the book goes on to argue why Christ is greater. And if we ever wonder why such exalted theology that's stated about Christ, why that's given to us and how that's supposed to help us, we actually see it in the text this morning before us. If you've ever wondered, why do we need to study theology? Why do we need to study some of the the more nuanced things of Scripture and Christ Himself? We actually see the purpose for it in the life of Abraham because we see that it's these very things of what he understood of the person of Christ is what got him through the most difficult scenario that one could conceive of. And that's what we see this morning. And we see the nature of his faith by what he does. We see how his faith was strong, and we see also that his faith was a grace of God. So let us read verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And this is the word of God. May he bless the reading of it. We we begin by looking at the nature of, of Abraham's faith by what he does, and what he does is he offers up Isaac. And notice what the text says is he does this by faith. This was an act of faith that he does this, and it's faith that gets him through it. So the greatest conceivable demonstration of trusting God is accomplished only by faith. So specifically, what was... What was this act? What took place? Well, notice what the text says when he was tested. And we just have to to pause there and consider this. And different translations say different words for tested. If you go to Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, it specifically says God tested Abraham. God is the one that does this to Abraham. Now, what does it mean to, to test something? The word is to determine the nature of something or to prove something under a set of difficult circumstances. Now, if that's the definition of testing, and I think that that's what we should accept here, there's a few problems we have to uh, overcome in order to understand this text properly. Because notice what it says, that God tested him. Genesis confirms that. 
And the first obstacle we have to overcome is the fact that Scripture explicitly teaches that God does not test. In James chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And you say, well, that word's tempted. In, in Hebrews, it's the word tested. Well, they're the exact same Greek word. They're just translated differently. And so how do we, how do we then uh, come to uh, reconcile these, these two verses that seem to be contradictory? Well, verse 14 goes on to teach us what it means. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. God will never actively work wickedness or evil into a person's desires. He doesn't have to. They're already there. God doesn't have to actively work sin or place sinful desires in a person. God never moves a person to sin. And so we we, we understand that that word then is being used in two different ways. Now, we also believe that the scriptures teach that God is sovereign over every single thing that takes place. Otherwise, he's not sovereign. There would be an area of his, of his realm that he's not sovereign over if he wasn't sovereign over every single thing. And we see not only is God sovereign over every single event that takes place, but we also see in Scripture that we're responsible people that are held responsible for our actions. And so when it says that he does not tempt, it just simply means this, God never places sin in the human heart. Now, there's a second obstacle. The text says that God tested him. Who's known as the great tempter in Scripture? Well, Satan's known as the tempter. Satan's the one that tempted the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, how do we reconcile these two ideas? Well, there's, we have to understand two different Two different outcomes, two different purposes, two different ends for which they both work. Satan tempts to destroy and kill you because with sin comes death. His end is to destroy you. His end, when temptations come your way, what you have to understand about those temptations is they're not working for your good when you succumb to them. They're working for your death. God works through testing people for his people's good. In other words, when circumstances of God's providence put you in a trial, it is working for your good and for your benefit. Satan will never work for your good or your benefit. He will always work for your destruction and your harm. But then there's a third obstacle. Not only do we have the obstacle of what seemingly on the surface seems to be two different contradictory scriptures. We have the obstacle of Satan is called the tempter. But there's also another obstacle that's also something we have to figure out and helps us to understand why this testing is actually good. Testing is to prove something, and the reason one will test something or someone else is because they're ignorant of the outcome. Well, think about that. 
If you were to test someone, you're testing them to gather information that you did not previously have. When you think of this as if sometimes testing can be this way as you hold something up to the light so the light shines through it and so you can see what's inside. Is that what God is doing with Abraham as if he's holding Abraham up to the light and and trying to figure out what's really inside of Abraham and, and God is going to learn whether Abraham will be faithful? Is that what's taking place in the text? When you read Genesis in chapter 22 in verse 12, we read this. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And when you read that text, it it almost sounds as if God was learning something about Abraham that he, he didn't know. So was God ignorant of how Abraham would act? Was God unaware and and this was actually shocking to him? Oh, Abraham passed the test. I didn't see that one coming. I thought he would fail. Well, there's a couple things that we know Scripture explicitly teaches and which we just... We, 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 we cannot ignore that God knows everything. That's God's omniscience. And in 1 John 3, 3.20, we read, He knows everything. That's pretty plain what that means. We also read in Scripture of God's not only foreknowledge, but also the fact that God decrees things that take place, that you could say that's God's predestination in, in Acts. We see this in one of the, the prayers in verse 24 of Acts 2. We read this, God, or excuse me, chapter 4, in verse 24. It says, And when they heard this, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. Now they start their prayer by saying, Sovereign Lord. And the word sovereign just means ruling, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it. So as the, the, the church gathers to pray to God, as they pray, they acknowledge God as sovereign. But then they go to expand on what that sovereignty means in verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, how we understand God's sovereignty is directly through the idea of his predestination of all things that take place. And there's another aspect of God and his attributes that we have to recognize as we're trying to, trying to sort through what this exactly means that God tested him. Is this, is in Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. You can go to other passages. God doesn't take counsel with anyone. So what's going on here that it says God tested Abraham? If, if, if God is not... Uh, learning something about Abraham, if he's not being given new information, what does it mean that God tested Abraham? Very simply, if God's not learning through this test, who is learning? Abraham. Who else was learning? Well, those around Abraham. Who else is learning? 
you and I. We're learning something directly about the very nature of God and his actings through his providence in human history. We're learning something about the nature of God and what, how he operates with humanity. What did Abraham learn through this? Well, he learned his dependence upon the Lord. He learned that he had to be fully dependent upon the Lord for all things. He learned the mercy and the grace of the Lord. He probably even recognized his own doubts in trusting the Lord through all of this. But does this apply to us today? We can just say that God's not going to audibly speak to you and ask you to do what he has done with Abraham. God doesn't speak to us audibly anymore. He speaks to us through his word by the Spirit. So God's not going to speak to you in the same manner that he spoke to Abraham. But shouldn't we recognize that actually God still operates in human history? That God still is providential uh, or sovereign over his, and his providence is the unfolding of his sovereignty. And the Lord puts us through circumstances by which he tests us, not so that he can learn anything about us, but rather so that we may learn. Let me just give you a few passages of Scripture to demonstrate that we actually should see God operating in our lives this way even now. You think about the story of Job. At the very end of Job, in Job chapter 42, you read in verse 11 these words, and they showed him sympathy and comfort him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. You get to the end of Job, and Job's being comforted by his family. And that word evil can also mean disaster. They recognized that all that Job had gone through was from the hand of the Lord. That God was sovereign over all of the events of Job's life. In fact, when Job gets the news of the loss of all things, what does he do? The first thing he does is he worships the Lord. He had an understanding of God's sovereignty in his life. He understood that the circumstances that he was facing were coming from the very hand of God. In Deuteronomy, we see a very poignant verse in Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. It says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, did God not know what was in their heart? Did he not know that, that they wouldn't keep his commandments? But what does the text specifically say? That God tested them, that the Lord brought them through this wilderness. And what, does it, what is it that they're able to discover? What was the purpose? Well, the text specifically says to humble them. Could it be that perhaps as we face trials in our life, sometimes it's, the, it's God's process of humbling us? For the Israelites, it was to make them realize that apart from a circumcised heart, they could not keep his commandments. 
apart from God doing something in them, it showed them and revealed their own heart. And what would that cause them to do? To fall upon the very mercy of God. Could it be that through circumstances in your life, that that is the Lord's means of bringing an awareness of, of the sinfulness and wickedness of our own hearts to light? Let me give you another example of God testing. In Second Chronicles, in chapter 32, we get to the end of Hezekiah's life, and you know, remember, Hezekiah was a good king of Israel, or of Judah, excuse me. He was a good king, he was a faithful king, uh, but he made the blunder when foreign dignitaries came to visit Judah, he showed them and showed them all of his wealth. It was one of his big blunders. And we read this at the end of his life in verse 31 of 2 Chronicles 32. And in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. It's very interesting in the situation with Hezekiah, you see a different angle of God's testing taking place. And that testing came by removing his graces from him. That God removed his, his restraining hand and allowed Hezekiah's heart to do whatever Hezekiah's heart wanted. What did this do? Well, it made Hezekiah realize his need. It made him realize the weakness of his own strength. It, it led to Hezekiah's own realization of the hidden wickedness in his heart. Do trials have that effect on us when we face them? How do we deal with human suffering and trials that we face? Does it lead us to a humility and our recognition of our need for the Lord? Does it reveal the, 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 the hidden sins of our heart? Does it real, help us lead us to recognize that the Lord is working in us? Romans chapter 5, we read this in verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. As we face trials in life, we see that there's a purpose in them, that something is actually happening. God is working. And we ought to give him credit. There was years ago, I remember a young lady went through uh, several bouts of cancer where it would go into remission and come back, go into remission and come back. And, and the Lord brought her through that. 
And it was very telling that through that time, she kept saying, I knew how strong I was. What was the Lord was doing was working in her to show to her her need. And it was finally when she recognized this wasn't me getting through this. It was the Lord getting me through this. That she began to understand the Lord's purposes. We may not understand why things happen, but we know that trials and difficult situations teach us. It teaches us how to live differently in this pilgrimage of life. Sometimes it leads us to say this after trials, I should have done this differently, or I should not have reacted in this manner, or maybe I should have, I should have been relying more upon the Lord. But we recognize this is through trials, we often learn more about ourselves and our need for the Lord than we would without the trials. So we should not abhor trials, though none of us want them, do we? Now, God tested Abraham. And what was that test? Well, the text tells us to offer up Isaac. And if you'll notice in Hebrews that it's stated as a completed act, he offered up Isaac. It's stated here as if Abraham had actually gone through with the slaughter itself. Why is it stated that? Let me read in Genesis chapter 22, beginning in verse 9. It says, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. The angel of the Lord stops Abraham from doing it. Abraham doesn't actually go through with it. So you might think that Abraham didn't do this, but what do we know about actions? Where do actions begin before they actually manifest themselves in us carrying something out? Actually, all of these things begin in the will, the mind, and the heart before they're actually ever truly carried out. And you have to, we have to grasp this in the story of Abraham. Abraham carried out everything he was going to do to his son without actually physically killing him. It was in his will, it was in his heart, and it was in his desire. And you might say, hold on, there's no way Abraham desired to kill his son. No, but he desired the word of the Lord. More so than even that of his son. And so we see the nature of faith. Abraham had to have had a greater desire for God and for knowing God. And that desire that he had for God as the, the direct object of his faith required following his word even through the most painful experience that he would ever face. This is the nature of faith, isn't it? You consider what Jesus says in Matthew, in chapter 10, in verse 37. He says, Whoever 
loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And the Lord is speaking of a priority for the Lord over others. Did Abraham love Isaac? Absolutely. Did he love Isaac more than himself? Absolutely. Did he love Isaac more than anything on this physical earth? Absolutely. Abraham loved the Lord more. As Jesus tells us, we are to love the Lord more. And so the object of his desire and his affection was God. And the express channel for which it was demonstrated is obedience to the word of God. Do you think of how Jesus correlates those two ideas of love for him and obedience? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So how do we express our love for God? If we say we love God, well, the scripture repeatedly shows us that love expressed is obedience to his word. Was this difficult for Abraham? Is it difficult for us? You think of all the different scenarios that we face through life where we, where we want to follow our own will rather than the will of God. but then we say we love God. Now, the, the th reality is this, is that every decision we make one way for the Lord or, or, or opposite the Lord is difficult. But is our greatest desire the Lord? And if our greatest desire is the Lord, it will override the obstacles of the impossible or what seems impossible. And as we face trials in our lives, and as we face these things that come before us, we have to recognize that the evidence of our faith is coming through that. Now, look, you're not saved by how well you live the Christian life. You're saved by the blood of Christ. And so we can't mix that up. We're looking at now, okay, how do we live in light of that? John Owen says the great trials in believers are on evidence of great faith in them though not understood either by themselves or others before such trials. In other words, oftentimes as we face great trials, we see it's a demonstration of great faith. And so let us learn from Abraham, this man of faith, that whatever trials we may encounter, they are for our good and they are working in us. Now, what was, what was it that Abraham was, was promised as he is going to sacrifice his son? In verse 18, it says, Of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So this test that's given to him was where, one where it removed the possibility of fulfillment of the promises. So, Notice what the text says in Hebrews. It mentions his only son, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, is a quote from Genesis. He is the one through which the, the promises are to come about. And so without Isaac, he's the crucial piece of the, the puzzle. Without Isaac, there is no promise. Now, what does it mean that it was his only son? Because you think of Ishmael. 
was also his son through Keturah. Well, Ishmael was not the son of promise through Sarah. And that's what it means by his only son. But notice the emphasis, this is his only son, which shows us the difficulty of the task and how it removes the idea of the promise. You think of Abraham wandering around all these years waiting for this child to finally come, and now he's told to slaughter him. Romans chapter 4 verse 20 says he did this without wavering. And if you look in the Genesis account in Genesis 22, we read this in verses 3 and 4 after he's told by God to take your son, your only son, whom you love. Verse 3 says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. What really grasps me about this text is for three days after he was commanded, he's walking with his son that he's going to kill. He has to see his son for three days on the way to killing him. He's speaking with his son. He's eating meals with his son. He's interacting with his son. And all before him is his son that he knows he has to take his life. We don't see hesitancy in the text, though, do we? We don't see Abraham stumbling. We do not see him arguing with God or trying to bargain with God. We don't see anything like that. What we see is Abraham taking his son and walking with him to his own impending doom, and for three days he does this. That's incredible. How did he do this? By faith. By faith, he did this. That's what the text tells us. And so faith overcomes the greatest conceivable challenges that God throws our way. Now, lest we forget, faith is a grace of God. What do I mean by it's a grace of God? Grace is a gift, an unmerited favor. And so faith itself is a gift. Faith is not something we do. It's not another work of self-determination. Abraham's just not really strongly willed in obedience to God. This is by God's grace. Faith is given from God. Yes, the, the exercise of faith is upon our shoulders, but it is a grace of God. And so Abraham faces the obstacle by leaning upon God. How does he lean upon God? He leans on God by obedience to what God has told him. How is it that we lean upon God? If it's by doing the opposite of what his word tells us, then we're not leaning upon him. We're doing things according to our own will. 
So leaning upon God happens through trusting in Him, resting in Him, knowing His revealed plan to us in His Word, and trusting that it is better for us than to follow our own will. What is it that Abraham believed that God would do through this? It's remarkable. The text says in verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That word considered there, he considered, it means this, he believed that God had to, the power to do this. And specifically, raise, and that word raise is the word that Jesus uses for, for resurrection, he believed that God had the power of resurrection. And why did he believe this? It's not hard to figure out why he would believe this. He believed this because of the nature of how he even received Isaac in the first place. Abraham was considered as good as dead. The womb of Sarah was considered what? Dead. And he saw God bring life to something that was dead. Abraham was himself almost dead. He had experienced the sovereign work of God of resurrecting things and bringing things that are dead to life. And he even demonstrated this in the narrative. In Genesis chapter 22, it's very clear that, that Abraham knew that whatever unfolded Isaac would be coming back with him. In fact, it says this in Genesis 22, verse 5, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham, before he even goes through with the act, knows that he's going to be bringing Isaac back with him. They're all plural there. In verse 8 of Genesis 22, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so as Isaac is looking at the situation of knowing there's, a, there's going to be a sacrifice coming and saying, Dad, what's happening here? Abraham says, God will provide the sacrifice. The text is very clear in Genesis 22, and the New Testament confirms this, that whatever Abraham went through, that he was coming back with Isaac alive, his son. He had complete trust in God. Now, the, the phrase in Hebrew is very in Hebrews, is very interesting. It, it reads this in Hebrews, in verse 19 of 11, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is a difficult passage with a lot of uh, arguments on both sides because of the word figuratively. So on the one hand, it just means that Abraham, in a sense, received him back from the dead. Isaac was as good as dead. And so to receive him back, because he was going to go through with it, he receives him back, and it was as if there was an actual resurrection. That word figuratively, though, 
it's, it's actually a word that sounds like our, our English word, parable. So what does this mean? Well, the NSAB captures the meaning of this, and that is this. He received him back as a type. He received him back as a type. And we've talked in Hebrews about typology. You have the type and you have the anti-type. Isaac would be the type. Christ would be the anti-type. It shows us this, is that Abraham believed in the doctrine of the resurrection as pointing towards the promised Messiah. Isaac was a type of Christ. When I was in seminary, and we were studying hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the art of interpretation, how you interpret the Bible. I remember my hermeneutics professor saying, as we, we looked at this passage in detail, he said, you know, we really shouldn't see Christ as a type. That's not really what the text says. The New Testament doesn't really ever say that. That's enlightenment thinking, is to read the scriptures that way to give the Old Testament priority over the New Testament, which is a cause for a lot of doctrinal error, by the way. Actually, the New Testament reveals to us what was in the Old Testament. The Old Testament has the priority in interpreting the Old Testament. Let me just give you a list of how Isaac was a type. I saw this in the commentator John Gill. He has 12, but I'm going to give 11 of the 12 he gives of how Isaac was a type. Both were long promised. Isaac had been promised long before he came. Christ had been promised from Genesis 3.15. Both had an extraordinary birth. We looked in detail. We're, we're coming up to Christmas we know the extraordinary birth of Christ. Both were persecuted from a very young age. Isaac was persecuted by Ishmael. Christ was persecuted by Herod. Both were sons of Abraham, according to the promise. Both were only begotten. Both were the only begotten. Both were called beloved. Both were heirs of the promise. Both carried the wood on which they would be offered. Both to be slaughtered on a mount by their father. Both by the command of God. Both delivered on the third day. Both received back from the dead. In other words, all that takes place with Isaac is showing the patriarch Abraham of what would be taking place in the future in his greater son, the Messiah. That there would be a hope of a resurrection. And all of this is pointing towards that. So what is it that sustained Abraham for those three days 
The picture of Christ sustained Abraham. Now, these Hebrews, the, the, through which this letter is written, they were in fear of losing what they had. They may have been in fear of losing their promised inheritance. And so Abraham is presented before their eyes for encouragement. But as we look at Abraham, we see that we look past Abraham and we look to the son of Abraham. That is, we look to Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father, that became man. The one who perfectly fulfilled the law and through his obedience satisfied the justice of God. The one who accomplished reconciliation. The one who purchased an inheritance that is imperishable and cannot be destroyed. It's pointing us to the one that is heir of all things and is given, gives his inheritance to all those that are in him. What sustains us is knowing that Christ governs all things, that he is sovereign over all things, that he mediates upon, on behalf of his church, that he, he's always providing intercession for us. Abraham had his eyes on that. And many people think that when he received Isaac back, that that's what Jesus was talking about when it says that he rejoiced to see my day and he saw it. Is that when he received back his resurrected son, he saw the picture of Christ. You see, we may have trials as well that we face, but our sovereign Lord is working them out for a purpose. And so how we get through them is to keep our eyes focused on the Lord Jesus through this pilgrimage, to know that he is working for our good through whatever we face. And we face it by faith that can conquer the most impossible things that we will ever face. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word that shows us this wonderful picture of faith of Abraham that was given to him by your grace. Give us the grace to keep our eyes upon the Lord Jesus as we travel through this pilgrimage called life. Fill our hearts with every step of hope of being reunited with Christ in eternity. It's in his name we pray. Amen.